The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, let's open it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses 23 through 32. And so what happens here is that kind of the, the, those who are in charge and control and in power and religious authorities come to Jesus and say, hey, you know, by what authority do you do all of these things? And Jesus responds to them. And so this, where we are, where we've landed this last section of the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be here for a little while, but uh, we've already seen Palm Sunday, and literally by the end of the week is going to be Good Friday, where he's crucified, and then on the third day rise from the dead. So it's only one week. Matthew, the first writer of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, spends a lot of time giving us where Jesus was, what he taught, what he said, what he did in that final week of his earthly life and ministry. And, and there's, this is one of those just very important, powerful messages. So I want us all to bow our heads and let's pray, because I want you to really be listening and tuned in uh, to what the Lord may want to say to you this week. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word. And we, we pray that we might have ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord would say to our hearts today. Open our spiritual eyes. Open the eyes of our understanding so that we see it, we understand it, uh, and then that we will, by faith, kind of grab hold of it and, and put it into our hearts, bury it in our minds, and appropriate it so that it becomes living. The seed takes root and begins to break forth the soil of our lives and, and bears the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and all the fruit of the Spirit. For your kingdom and glory, we thank you in the wonderful, worthy, and precious name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Okay, so beginning uh, in Matthew chapter 21, uh, beginning in verse 23. It says, now when he came into the temple. So Jesus, uh, this whole last week, he's probably staying on the Mount of Olives, and then he would walk down the Kidron Valley and back up to Mount Moriah where the temple mount was. So he came into the temple. So that's where he would come every morning uh, there to teach, to disciple, to prepare. And the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And by the way, who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, the baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from earth or men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, well, why then didn't you believe him? But if we say it's from men, we fear the multitudes, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered and Jesus, and they said, we do not know. And he said to them, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So I love that. So here's the first thing I want you to note 
Uh, oops, we already did that. So the authority of God's Word comes from the author himself. Jesus gives, will, after this, he gives a series of three parables. We'll give the first of the three at the end of the message today. We'll look at the next one uh, the next time we get together. And he's answering the question of the chief priests and the elders to explain by what authority he did these extraordinary miracles. As the leaders of the nation, they had every right uh, to ask. But we have to be honest, uh, we're amazed at their ignorance. For three years, Jesus has been teaching, and He has been giving miracles and signs and wonders and ample proof that what He says is true and is vindicated and validated by the demonstration of the power of God. But what, what has just happened, not only the miracles, but if you remember, the thing, one of the first things apparently right after Palm Sunday that Jesus did is He cleansed the temple. He, he was angry. He literally, the Bible says, made a whip of cords and started snapping that thing uh, all over the temple and turning tables upside down. Coins are flying everywhere. Animals are flying, and the birds are flying, and the sacrifices. And, and then He stood there yelling and accusing, you've made my father's house a den of thieves and of robbers, a house of merchandise. My father's house should be called a house of prayer. And then he kind of stood guard and made sure nobody that day at that moment did any other exchange. Well, so these religious leaders, they get together, hey, by what authority do you do these things? What gives you the right to do what you have done? And I, I do think that it's interesting that as Jesus uh, uses wisdom here, I want you to note, Jesus did not answer their question. If you're writing down notes, I want you to just note that and write it down. They asked Jesus a question, a direct question. He did not answer them. Okay? Now, there are many of us, you have family, you have friends, you have relatives, you have people that you, that, you know, they're not with you, they're not at church, maybe they're not walking with God, or maybe they used to, and now they don't, and you're wanting to win them. And so when it does come up, a lot of times they come to you with a confrontation, with a question. They're like, well, you know, the church, and then they, you know, fill in the blank. The church has done this, and the church has done that. And then you know, they will make another accusation, you know, pastors and priests, and then they do this. And, and it, you know, if there's a God of love, then how come there's all this horror and all of this stuff that's happening in the world? How can I believe in a God of love? I can't tell you when I was a young pastor how many times something like that, and I would dive in and I would start answering and defending and debating and arguing and getting into it and all of that. And, you know, I, I did okay, but I don't know that I did all that well. And then I kind of, you know, you look at Jesus, and I learned something from him. Just because they ask a question doesn't mean you have to answer it. So, in fact, what Jesus did in this circumstance was, so, by the way, take note, just because they make an act, usually it's not so much a question as it is an accusation. Just what, they weren't really asking Jesus by what authority. They're saying, you don't have the right to do what you're doing. They're accusing him. He did not answer that accusation. But here's what he did do. He answered a question with another question. Ah, that's smart. So I started trying to do that. They would come to me and they'd go, I can't believe in a God of love, you know, this and that, and they would go through their litany. And then they would say, you know, I just, I just can't believe. And I said, you know, that's very interesting 
Because for the very same reasons, all of the horror, all of the war, all of the abuse, all of the greed, all of the selfishness, all of the hurt and the pain being caused by human beings, I've lost my faith in man, but my faith in God keeps going up. That's who I'm losing my faith in is man. And we're, we're, the, we're supposedly the smartest generation of human beings, more technology, more knowledge, more power, but has it made us any less warmongers, haters, you know, all the problems. We have the same problems they had in ancient times, simpler times. So apparently that's not the solution. I've lost my faith in man, but my faith in God has grown even greater. How could that be? Because God knew that this was our problem. God gave a remedy, and that remedy for suffering is found in the cross. I just go right to the cross of Jesus Christ. So we learn a little bit from Jesus. Now, Jesus also answered a question with a question. He goes, well, so I'll ask you, and if you answer my question, then I'll answer yours. He takes them back to the ministry of John, which was brilliant. The people believed in John. Now, you have to realize that John the Baptist, basically the people, the populace, said, that guy's a prophet. He's not in it for the money. He lives out in the desert. He eats, you know, locusts and honey. He preaches to the mountains, and, and it's repentance, and it's touched a nerve in the whole nation. Everybody knew he was a prophet. Israel had not had a prophet in 400 years. That's a long time. You go to the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, is about almost 400 years earlier. So when a real, like where the whole people and populace goes, that guy's from God. You may not agree with him, but that guy's a holy man. Don't mess with him. He's a prophet. And so Jesus brings them back to John. So John, was, he, was his power and authority of heaven or of earth? And if they said it was of heaven, which is what the people said, then Jesus would say, well, then why didn't you believe the prophet of God? Because that prophet pointed to me and said, he's the guy. He's the Messiah. He is the Son of God, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And if they said, no, it's not of God, <laughs> they'd be dealing with a mob that was after them. So authority. To begin with the idea of authority, you have to realize that the word authority comes directly from the word author. When there's authority, there's an author. Now, I've written a few books, and, uh, you know, so people might have a question about that, and if they have a question, well, what does this mean here, and Ray's book, whatever, then go to the author and ask, because I know what I was thinking when I wrote it. I'm the author of it. This was on my mind. Here's what I was trying to say. Maybe I didn't say it the best way, but on the author. Ask the author. So also with God, the authority of any work is the authority of the author, and the author is God Himself. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Paul the Apostle is writing to a young man named Timothy, and he says something very powerful and very profound. Let's read it all together. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You'll notice in this scripture, and I think it's also in your notes, uh, the word inspiration is underlined. 
And the reason it's underlined is because that word, inspiration, the original Greek meaning means, what is inspiration? It means literally God breathed. So read that again and think about it again. All Scripture is given by the breath of God. And by the way, in both Hebrew and Greek, so Hebrew the Old Testament basically, and Greek in the New, the words in Hebrew and Greek for spirit and breath are synonymous. So God breathed means God's spirit. The authority behind all of Scripture is the authority of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wrote the Word of God. He is the author of the Bible. And then note what he says, all Scripture, not some Scripture. There are some that will say, okay, look, yeah, I believe there's parts of the Bible basically that I agree with, and that's authoritative, but there's other parts. It's old-fashioned, it's out of date, it doesn't make it for modern times. I don't, certain parts I don't accept. But that's not what the declaration here is. All Scripture. That means literally from the very first verse of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. All the way to the very last verse of the book of Revelation, all Scripture is God-breathed, inspired, written by the Holy Spirit. That means uh, the book of Ezra, the whole book of Ezra is the inspired Word of God, the book of Nehemiah. Recently on Wednesday nights, uh, Pastor Sean has been teaching or was just finished up teaching the book of Esther. What a powerful story. What a great study that that was that Sean gave. And what's unique about the, the book of Esther, one of the unique things, the name God isn't mentioned one time. But man, the story has God written all over it. It's powerful. And it's God-breathed. The, there's a little tiny book uh, called Joel written by the prophet Joel that has a lot to say about the last days, that God would pour His Spirit out on all flesh. And those three short chapters are all divinely inspired, God-breathed. The book of Zechariah, all of those scriptures are inspired by God. Now, as for interpretation, there is only one authorized interpreter. And that is the author who wrote it in the first place. God is really the only authorized interpreter of the Bible. As I've said before, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. It comments on itself. You can compare one part to another part, and it will explain it and give a new layer and new meaning and new understanding. God interprets His own Word. He tells us plainly what He said and what He meant. Now, there's another verse in the New Testament. This is the Apostle Peter, one of the kind of inner circle, even among Jesus' disciples of Peter, James, and John. And he wrote this in his second letter recorded in the New Testament, inspired by God. God breathed. Let's read it out loud. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So that kind of is explaining, under divine inspiration, 
how Scripture came about. And that you don't get to interpret, you know, how you want it, because prophecy never comes by the will of man. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, what's interesting, though, is that those who wrote the Bible were all weak. They were all flawed. They all were sinners saved by God's amazing grace. And even one of the most famous of them who wrote quite a bit of the Bible is a man named David. Now, what's interesting about David, the ancient king of Israel, is that even outside of church and Sunday school, in the big, broad world, anywhere in the world, any continent, they have an understanding of that guy for a lot of interesting reasons. They know who King David was, and they know the general arc of his story, uh, and he was quite famous. Uh, and part of his famousness is some of the big mistakes that he made. David was a big sinner, but he was also a big repenter. And he became and was a big worshiper of God. And God said, and I love this, that David is a man after my own heart. Why did God say that? He didn't pick some guy that was all perfect. He said, David. Why would you pick David, who was such a great sinner? Because he was also a great repenter, and he was a great worshiper, and he gives hope to all of mankind that you can have a heart pleasing unto the Lord. And that, that, does that find, did anybody find that encouraging? I find that very encouraging. That, that no matter what mistakes or failures, even the big ones that you have made, you could be a man or a woman after the heart of God, that God goes, that's my boy, that's my son, David. He let David write virtually the majority of the Psalms, the most beautiful, powerful, prophetic, poetic, musical verses in the Bible. But they were flawed. So the question then becomes, well, how can the Bible be infallible if it was written by people who were fallible? So here is, again, let's let the Bible answer to the Bible and comment on and about itself. Here's just one, Psalm 12, verse 6. Let's read this out loud. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Now, you know, I've, I've mentioned this over the years, but probably there are a number here that don't know. Uh, I started pastoring when I was 20 years of age, you know, so right after I graduated at 18 years of age, so I, I had a pretty short window um, in, in between graduating high school and starting my pastoral calling and ministry, and I had moved up to Orange County to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. I was going to basically church every night or having Bible studies every night. I was living in a house ministry called the House of Psalms. It was pretty interesting uh, exciting time. It was in the middle of a move of God called the Jesus people. And anyway, I lived in this house with about 40 others, guys and girls of all different backgrounds and kind of a halfway house and fascinating stories. It was kind of a, uh, you know, a PhD program shortened uh, that I experienced in that house. But that's another story. We don't have time to get into it. Anyway, uh, while I was there, I had to have a full-time job, and so I found a job literally across the street from Calvary Costa Mesa at a place called Bob Seaman Christian Jewelers. I always kind of liked jewelry, so I went in there, and I was like, you know, the, the lowest guy in the totem pole, which means you're the polisher, and you get the wax molds, and then you get them ready uh, for the casting and so forth. But I had an older guy uh, that was, he was kind of the, you know, the, at the top tier, and he was 
Um, his name was Mike, and he would come and go, hey, Ray, 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 come on, you, you got to see, you want to see this, man. So he would bring me over, and that's when they would take the little blocks of silver or gold, and they would put it into the iron pot, and then they would heat the thing up, and he would stand back, and it would just heat up, and he, and he got this big smile on his face, wait, wait, wait till you see it. And, he, and then I said, what? And he goes, man, you've never seen anything more beautiful in your life than silver or gold that has been heated so hot it melts. Molten gold is like divine. It's heavenly. Molten silver is incredible. And so, we, you know, wow, we would look and we would watch that, and then you heat it again, and, and up to the surface would come these weird colors, green, purples, yellows, different stuff, and then kind of this stuff would form, and, and what's that? Oh, that's the slag. That's all the impurities. It's zinc and copper and other metals that are mixed in with it, because the gold and silver are heavier, they're down at the bottom, and all of the lighter stuff comes to the surface, and we skim it off, until finally you can just see your reflection in the molten silver or gold. Now it's ready to be poured into making jewelry and rings and earrings and all of that. Well, it's interesting that here in Psalm 12, he's talking about what we do today in modern times for jewelry is what they did thousands of years ago, and notice the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth. They would use even clay pots. They would heat it up. They would melt it, and they would do it again and again to purify it, to get all of the contaminants out of it, purified seven times. So a furnace of earth, a clay vessel, if you will, filled with the fire of God, cleansed and purified, so the pure word comes out. So what the word is saying is God can use earthen vessels, and God can use clay pots, and He can put His pure gold into it, heat it up, and fire it, and out comes the pure word of God. Does that make sense? So that's what He's saying. And it's very powerful, and it's very beautiful, and by the way, it's very hopeful. Wow. We can have the purity of the Word of God in us and through us and live in us and grow and bear fruit through us. Hallelujah. Okay, so note this. Jesus defeated the devil by quoting Scripture. At the end of uh, Matthew chapter 3, uh, Jesus is getting baptized by his uh, cousin John the Baptist, and John, as he baptizes him, Jesus comes up out of the water, and the Holy Spirit… The, the eyes of John are open. The Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove, and John witnesses it. And then a voice speaks from heaven and shakes heaven and earth as, as if God cannot hold back anymore this divine secret plan of redemption he had for humanity, and there he comes. The incarnation has now grown and is now time to come. He's of age. And God says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So now the Spirit comes upon him. He gets baptized. Now Jesus is ready to minister. This is the three-year ministry that will literally turn the world upside down and bring heaven to the earth. But before Jesus performs one miracle, one deliverance, one resurrection, one healing, Immediately after his baptism, immediately after the Spirit comes upon him, he is led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So I have a word of application for you 
that are listening to this message today, the moment that you have your eyes open, the moment that you make a decision, you know what? I've been there, done that. I'm not following the world and my flesh anymore. I'm following the Lord. I'm going to seek Him. Immediately, you will be met with spiritual, supernatural opposition. Look, if you're in the world and you're already, wahoo, you know, let's go, and you dive into the cesspool, the devil say, fine, he's doing his on his own. The moment you turn around, you get cleansed through baptism and commitment, and you start serving the Lord, he goes, okay, now we got a problem. I'm going after that guy, starting with the Messiah himself. So he will come against you. Now, do not be discouraged when that happens. The moment you make a decision to say, I'm getting serious with God, I'm tired of all this other nonsense, I want to experience the presence and the power of God. Expect, anticipate, there will be fiery trials that will immediately come. But this is, this is not uh, a sign that you're doing the wrong thing. It's actually evidence you're going in the right direction. Because he'd leave you alone if nothing was going on. But man, now you're dangerous. The moment you surrender to him, you get led by the Spirit and you defeat the enemy on his own ground and turf, and you go beyond that, now miracles are going to start happening. The kingdom of heaven is going to start opening up, and the world's going to change, and the devil's going to start losing his grip on you. Amen? But I want you to notice, what do we do when the devil comes? And by the way, he never gives up. He'll come back for another time, another season, which he did. But how did Jesus use the Scriptures? Here we find in Matthew chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Let's read this out loud together. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, let's look. He did this not only for himself to demonstrate who he is, but as a demonstration for all of his followers and all of his children and all of his disciples to follow. So I want you to note what Jesus did not do. Number one, he did not argue with the devil. Don't get into an argument and a back and forth or try to change the devil's mind or convince him why you're right or even why he's wrong. Do not argue with the devil at all. That's what got Eve in trouble and then Adam in trouble all the way back in the garden. We got into an argument and a debate with the devil. Don't argue with the devil. Don't debate with the devil. Notice, and there were three temptations. We just read the first one. Each time Jesus was tempted, here's how he responded. It is written. And then he quoted the Scripture. He did that three times. It is written, and then he quoted his Scripture. Okay, everybody look up here at me and say with me out loud, it is written. Ready? It is written. And then you read the Scripture. Now, I want you to notice whenever Jesus said it is written and quoted Scripture, Satan changed the subject. What that means is he lost the debate. He lost the battle. Game over. Debate done. It is written. End of story. Well, then he moves on to something else. And then again, it is written. Boom, he lost again. He tried another. It is written. And then he took off and left. Why? Because he knew he had no answer to the Scriptures because it has the power and the authority 
of the kingdom of heaven and the word of God. So if you get into an argument and a debate and you're trying to convince him, let alone with your friends or in your own head, Satan's tactic is very simple and threefold, and it hasn't changed from the very beginning. Number one, to doubt. Hath God really? Is that what God said? Did he really say that? Doubt. And then next is disbelief. Well, I can't believe he would say that. Surely he didn't mean exactly what he said. Well, that cannot be true. So you start with doubt, and then you begin to disbelieve. Yeah, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. And once you give in to doubt, and once you begin to establish disbelief, the third thing is disobedience. Why, that's not even worthy of being obeyed. Just flat out disobey. It has no right in your life whatsoever. So I want to say this to you. That's his tactic, to doubt, disbelieve, finally disobey, and you think with no consequences, oh, yes, there will be consequences. (laughs) The fact, you know, last week I was talking about blessings and curse. And we mentioned some of the things that bring the curse. The reality is that the whole human race, all seven billion people, are under a curse. It's called sin. It started in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. We all have it. The proof that that premise is correct is all seven billion people will die. That's the fact that seven, you know, the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of every one person will die. Seven billion and they will die because of sin. Sin brings death. That's proof. So we need to be removed from the curse. That's why Jesus came, and that's why Jesus went on the cross. He was made a curse for us. He took the curse for us, and then he broke the curse right in the middle of its back, and he rose on the third day. And all who believe and trust in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Amen? So when the enemy comes to you with a, well, the moderns don't look at it that way, we don't feel that way, we don't believe that anymore, don't fall for it. Don't doubt God's Word. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's Word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's truth is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't fall for it. Scripture is authoritative because it was all written by the author. So accept it. You change and surrender to it. Live by the Word of God. Answer the devil, not with your own abilities and debate. Answer the devil with the Word of God. He cannot answer the Word of God. He will lose every single time over and over again, and you will be set free, and God will use you mightily. Now, There's a scripture in Ephesians 6, and I wish we had time this morning to go into Ephesians 6 because the Apostle Paul kind of dives in this particular uh, chapter and and describes from divine revelation, God-breathed and inspired, how to fight the devil spiritual in a spiritual battle. And he names all these pieces of armor, seven pieces of armor from the head to the toe that are kind of borrowed even from a Roman soldier, uh, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the belt of truth, the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel, all of these things. But it's interesting that in one of them he says this, in Ephesians six 17, let's read it out loud, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, you'll, you'll notice that in your notes, I put a little, some brackets, and there's this funny-looking word, R-H-E-M-A, that is uh, pronounced rhema. Everybody say rhema. Rhema. 
Now, some of you may know, but there are probably as many that do not know, there are two different Greek words for word. One is logos, or logos. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When John in John chapter 1 is talking about the Word that became flesh, obviously it's Jesus, it's the Greek word logos. Logos is the total eternal counsel of God. But rhema is different. Rhema is the second word that is used and translated as word. Rhema is the spoken word of God. And that is the word that the Apostle Paul said, you're in a battle toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan himself, use rhema. Use the spoken word of God. In other words, you've got to take the word on your own lips and you've got to declare His Word into the battle and into the situation. Taking the sword of the Spirit, which is the rhema, or the spoken Word of God. When you are dealing with the devil, you have to meet him by speaking the Word. So what I mean is, it's not good enough that I have a Bible, and I believe in the Bible, and I've read the Bible, and I have my Bible on my shelf. Or you say, I even have my Bible on my nightstand right next to my bed. Oh, that's great. Then the enemy comes in, and it says our enemy goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So when the lion comes in the middle of the night, a nightmare or an accusation or some weird thing that is coming, and then you just go, oh, no, the devil. Okay, and you point to your sword up on the shelf. No, I have a sword. So you're, you're with your friend there going, hey, dude, there's like a lion's about ready to rip your head off. I know, but I have a sword. Yeah, it's on the shelf. Get it. Use it. No, you don't understand. I believe in my sword. Great. Put your hands on it and use it and go after the lion. That's what I'm talking about. It's not good enough that, no, I believe it. it's the Bible, it's the Word of God, it's inspired, and it's on your shelf, it's by your nightstand. That's great. But when the enemy comes, you've got to take, you've got to take that sword in your hand and, as it were, put it in your mouth. And in other words, sword. It's a word with the spirit behind it. And you're going to use that sword to pierce the enemy right through. Amen? When he comes against you, so that's why you read the Bible, so you know the Bible, because under a sneak attack, you're able to go, it is written. Boom. Done. He may go on to the next one, then you go, it is written again. And he may come a third time, it is written. The Bible cannot protect you if it is just sitting on your bookshelf, no matter how much you believe in it. So I want to just say it very plainly in modern English. The power of the Word of God is released when you quote it in your life. You have to take it personally. You have to say it with your own mouth and believe it in your own heart and use it in your own life circumstances, believing it, appropriating it for your life. Because that's when it becomes a two-edged sword to which the devil must yield every single time. Amen? Amen. All right, so what is, what is the authority for the New Testament? 
Um, we've talked a lot about the Old Testament. Let's go to John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. Let's read it. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. I want to say this. Even if you're a baby Christian and a brand-new believer, the Holy Spirit inside of you, as you read the Bible, will begin explaining it to you, teaching it to you, giving you divine revelation. On the other hand, I don't care how smart you are, how many degrees you have, PhDs, understanding in ancient languages, if you have not the Spirit or the Holy Spirit to give you understanding, you will not really gain the knowledge of the divine supernatural power of the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul said, the natural mind, no matter how smart it may be, cannot receive the things of God, for they are spiritually discerned. So even a young believer and a new believer with the Holy Spirit will get divine revelation, divine understanding, divine interpretation. That's the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's very, very powerful. Now, in John chapter 16, just a couple of chapters later, Jesus went on to say this. Let's read this out loud. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. Wow, I wish we had… I could do a whole sermon on that. When the Spirit of truth is come, He will guide you into all truth, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Word of God opens your eyes to seeing life and situations and the season of life you are in that without the Spirit you cannot. And, but once you see it, it's powerful. It sets you free. And, and also, He will tell you things to come. When you have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit knows the future because the Holy Spirit is God. So He kind of gives you an inner sense of what's coming. It's a powerful advantage to have in a fallen and broken world. And the very next verse, he goes on to say this, and let's read it. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. Wow, here is another very important mark of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, will always glorify Jesus. If ever there is a spirit or a manifestation of a spirit, and it does not honor and glorify Jesus Christ, it is not of God. Whether it's real or not, or supernatural or not, if it doesn't honor and glorify the spirit of Jesus Christ, it is not of God, and it is to be rejected. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All right, well, let's close with the last this is the first of the three parables Jesus now goes into, and I want to note that it is important not only to hear the Word, but to obey the Word of God. We talked about that last week. You know, the difference between being blessed and cursed is blessing comes when you hear the voice of the Lord, and then you obey what God says. So here's the first parable that Jesus told in that situation. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first, and he said, "'Son, go work today in my vineyard.'" And that son answered and said to him, I will not. But afterwards, he regretted it 
And so he did. He went, and he did serve in his father's fields. Then he came to his second son, and he said, likewise. And he answered and said, yes, sir, I go, sir, on my way, sir, no problem, sir. But then he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? These are, he's speaking to the religious leaders, and they said to him, the first one. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, tax collectors, harlots, will enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent or repent and believe in him. In other words, it was the publicans, the sinners, the tax collectors, which means the sellouts, economically, the harlots, the immorality, they're the ones who said no to the kingdom of God. We don't care that we're Jews or special people or called or whatever. We want to live our own lives. We're going to do what we want with our flesh, with our happiness, our pursuits for money and pleasure. But they're the ones who went on living in sin and turned their backs on God. But later on in life, they were the ones who had an awakening and they said, what am I doing? This is lousy. This isn't what I thought my life would be. I changed my mind, which is what it means to repent. I'm going back toward God. I'm going to actually start following Him, seeking Him, living for Him, surrendering my life to Him. But the Pharisees and the religious leaders were the ones who from the beginning said, yes, sir, we're your chosen people. We're the, we're the holy ones. We're the special ones. We're the righteous ones. Not like all this other riffraff down here. Yes, Lord. Oh, I'll do it. But it was all lip service. Mere outward religion does not impress God. For the Bible says the Lord does not look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God doesn't really care for lip service. Oh, yes, yes, yes. But He's really looking for those who truly repent, who really wake up, who change their mind like the prodigal son, who really break up the fallow ground, who make a choice to stop doing it their own way and yielding to the wisdom of their father and enter into a relationship with him and to seek after the Lord. Even though it's late, they're the ones who are doing the will of their father and the ones with all the lip service, yes, 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 very religious, very better than thou. He says, you're not. So it's important for us to give a heart to the Lord and say, Lord, I surrender to you. Uh, you know, if you have come late, uh, that's no problem. God says, you're the ones that will last not only a lifetime, but will last for all of eternity. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.